Our sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 17. We're looking this morning at verses 3 to 8, moving directly on from the two verses that we studied last week, Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. Before we read in Genesis chapter 17, we will pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we come now to study your word, we pray, Father, that we would be made ready to receive your word for that which it truly is, the very words of God. May we be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that are understanding and obedient. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll start reading at Genesis 17.1 and reading through to Genesis 17 verse 8. As I said, studying this morning particularly from verses 3 to 8. Genesis 17 verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Amen. May God bless his word to us. As um, you're reading Genesis chapter 17, you must always remember that back at Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, we read that Abraham believed God and he accounted it to him as righteousness. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham, and I'll start now to call him Abraham, Abraham has been justified. Abraham has been given right standing in the sight of God. Abraham has been made a servant of the living God. This is confirmed once again to Abraham in our passage here before, just I should say in our chapter here this morning, Genesis chapter 17, when God appeared to Abraham, he said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Now, you can read that as simply a commandment. Abraham, this is what you are to do in the future. But it is more than a commandment. It is actually a status that has been conferred upon Abraham. He is now walking in a king's presence. He is now walking, as it were, in the royal court of heaven. He is walking before God. He's being called into the heavenly court. And where he is, where, where God says, and be blameless, he's conferring upon Abram the status of being justified in the sight of God. Yes, you can read in there a commandment, continue to pursue holiness, continue, continue to pursue righteousness, but no one can perfectly pursue or take hold of holiness. No one can perfectly pursue or take hold of righteousness. In the book of Romans, and we read a section from Romans chapter 4, but 
In, in the book of Romans, at the beginning of Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul stresses Abraham was counted righteous through faith. God granted him the status of righteousness. This walking before me and be blameless, it's not because of Abraham's efforts that he is counted as blameless. It is because God has bestowed upon him a status. You are now walking before me in my heavenly court and I am bestowing upon you the attitude or the position of blamelessness. We looked last week, for those who weren't here, at Job, who was considered to be blameless in the sight of God. Now, Job was not purely, perfectly and utterly innocent, but he was blameless because God considered him to be blameless because Job was a man of faith. Abraham has a position. Walk before me and be blameless. And Abraham has covenantal commitments from God himself. From God himself. Once again, I remind you, the the covenant was initially inaugurated back in Genesis chapter 15. What's a covenant? It was the highest, most solemn contractual agreement that could be possibly entered into by a man of his day. And God entered into covenant with Abram. And God made promises to Abram. Now, in a covenantal relationship, when promises are made, they are made in the light of and in the presence of threats. The promises shall be kept or there will be consequences. And we looked at the fact that um, God himself passed between animals that had been cut in half. And we looked at, for those who are here, you remember, God speaks of this um, in the book of Jeremiah. And he says to the people, you made a covenant with me, you passed between those animals that were cut in half, and now because you've broken that covenant, you are going to be like the animals that were cut in half. The penalties are going to fall upon you. Well, in Genesis chapter 15, Abram does not pass between the animals. God does not say to Abram, the penalties are going to fall upon you. God himself passes between the dead animals basically saying, I will do this at the cost of life. If I fail to do this, there will be death. And that, that, at that moment, we're looking forward. Remember, Jesus said, Abram saw my day. He saw it and rejoiced. What did he see? He saw God passing in the midst of sacrificial animals, saying, I commit my life to fulfilling these obligations that I am making to you. Abram saw my day, said the Lord Jesus. He saw it and he rejoiced. So it's 13 years later, at least. Abram is now 99 years old. God appears to Abram and once again, God speaks of the covenant. I will make my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you greatly. At this point, Abram, whose name means blessed or exalted father, has only one child. That child is the child of a concubine. And this was a moral failing on Abram's part. He should not have gone into the concubine. He should have trusted in the providence of God. He had failed. His, holy, his, um, his, his walk before God, his sanctification, at that point in time, he had stumbled. 
It wasn't looking so good. Yet God says to Abram, walk before me and be blameless. I will multiply you greatly. At that point in time, he had only one child. That child was not the child of the promise. He was the child of the flesh, the scripture calls him. Yet God has said, I will multiply you greatly. So there, that's my introduction. We pick up the text then. Verse 3, Genesis chapter 17, verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face. My friends, Abram worships. Abram worships. A justified believer in God, one whom God has accounted to be righteous, is one who worships. There are no worshippers of God in spirit and in truth to um, use the words of our Lord Jesus. There are no worshippers of God in spirit and in truth who are not justified through faith in Christ. Where the gospel has been proclaimed, where the truth has been um, put before the people by God himself, you are once again looking at this covenantal idea. Something has been offered and there are consequences involved in not acting in faithful obedience towards the king. Only those who are justified through faith are worshippers in spirit and truth. Only those who are justified through faith are, as Abram was, the people who are in a truly covenantal relationship with God. It's in this condition, this condition of being blameless, this, this condition of having been placed, as it were, in the favourable presence of God, it is in this condition that he is a worshipper of the living God. He falls to his face. It's, it's, it's an act of complete and total submission. Basically, he's saying, I am powerless before you. All things come from you. All things come by your hand. I cannot bring any of these things that you have promised about in my own strength. I am totally and utterly reliant upon you. And there's a call to we who are the people of God, isn't there? You know, put aside the things of this world. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added unto you. The one who will not take up his cross and follow after me, that one is not fit to be my servant. Jesus requires of us total obedience, total allegiance, to love him above all other things, to love him without distraction, to love him with all of our heart and with all of our mind and with all of our soul and with all of our strength and in loving him to be loving God. And here's the fact, isn't it? I mean, that sounds nice. It sounds good, that word, that word love that was in there. Doesn't that sound great? You know, and... Who can claim to have obeyed in fullness? Who can claim to have done that which is required of us? Who can claim to have produced the works that God requires? And the answer is none of us, not even for a second. He's gracious. He's merciful. When justified, we have good standing in the sight of God. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. God the Father looks upon his people through 
God the Son. He looks upon his people through the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not saying he's unaware that we're sinners. He is. Psalm 103 tells us he knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. He knows our natures. But what I'm saying to you is that in our covenantal relationship through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we are looked upon as being as righteous as the Lord Jesus is. He was treated the way we deserve to be treated on the cross of Calvary. The justice of God fell upon him in order that we might receive mercy. And in receiving mercy, we are treated the way he deserves to be treated. We are called sons of God. We are given access to God. Our prayers are heard in heaven. Imagine that. Our prayers are heard in heaven. Not only are they heard. Now, we we had congregational prayer a moment ago. And I stumbled over some words and I didn't say some things quite the way I planned to say them. Didn't quite come out right. But I have the intercession of the Holy Spirit from Romans chapter 8 taking those words and making them acceptable in the sight of God. And then I have the intercession of my great high priest, my saviour, my covenant king, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. And so our prayers are heard in heaven, for we have status in the sight of God. We are sons of God, beloved children. We have a covenant that cannot and will not be broken. If we are in Christ, we have the life of Christ within us. And that life of Christ is resurrected life, life that cannot and will not be killed. The penalty of death has already fallen upon the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. It will not fall upon us as a penalty for sin. Let's read on from Genesis chapter 3. I'm in Genesis chapter 17, verse 3. Abraham fell on his face and God said to him. Now, what I want us to see here as we go through this is I want want you to um, look especially for who is doing the doing. Who is doing the doing? Things are going to be done. Things are going to happen. Who is doing the doing? Behold, my covenant is with me. I'm sorry, is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, which means father of a multitude or father of nations. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will Establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And I hope, you know, I put a little bit of emphasis on something there, didn't I? You heard it again and again and again. Who is doing the doing? God said. I will. I will do these things. What I want you to think of here is God's providence. God's providence. Now, we call ourselves a Reformed church. We, we submit to a Reformed confession. We preach what is called Reformed doctrine. And there are those who would rather put it this way. 
God looks down, as it were, the corridor of time. He looks down into the future. He sees what will happen and he reacts correspondingly. He sees who will believe. And so having seen that someone, for example, will believe, he makes that person elect, for example. But that's not what God is saying to Abraham here, is it? God is saying that with regards to your fruitfulness, both in the immediate and in the long term, your fruitfulness, your offspring down through the generations, it completely comes from me. Completely from me. Whether you have children or whether you do not have children, that comes from me. Whether or not you become the father of many nations, or you, that comes from me. Whether or not your children believe and I am their God, I will be their God. That comes from me. All of this comes from me. God is taking responsibility for all of history. He's not saying, look, Abraham, I've I've looked now into the future and I know that you'll always have a few faithful descendants and I'll make sure that I look after them as time goes by. He's saying to Abraham, you will have descendants and you will have faithful descendants and I will be their God because I'm making it happen. He's saying all of history, all of time, all of creation is in my hand. I am a God who tinkers with the souls of mankind. I get in there. I mess with the hearts of men. I make people alive or dead. I grant to people faith. Your offspring, I will be their God. Well, if somebody has God as their God, what is that person? They have to be a justified believer. They must be a person of faith. If they're not a justified believer, if they're not a person of faith, God is not their God. That's simple. That's not hard to understand. God makes a promise to Abraham. I will be the God of your descendants. What's the promise? I will make them faithful. I will make them believing. I will bring them to life just as I have brought you to life. They will believe my words and I will account it to them as righteousness, just as I did for you. This miracle of life that I've given you, Abraham, remember, you you dwelt in a land of idolatry. You dwelt among the idolaters. Your ancestors, they were interested in the sun and the moon and trying to discern the future from the stars. But you believed me, Abraham, and I accounted it as righteousness. I will do that for your descendants after you. And so in Scripture, we're told that those who believe share in the faith of Abraham and are counted as the offspring of Abraham. Now, we're the offspring of God. We're the children of the living God. But Abraham is on it. For Abraham was the man of faith. And God revealed himself through his covenantal obligations To Abraham, I will make your children my children. I will be their God. My friends, there are promises. And so now, here amongst us, perhaps there's someone who could trace trace their lineage back to some kind of Jewish connection, perhaps. But I'm sure most of us can't. I'm sure most of us can't. You'd have to get back as far as Noah to find some kind of common ancestry with the line of Abraham. Yet even so, 
We're sharing in the faith of Abraham. We're sharing in the life that God granted to Abraham. We're sharing in the faith in the God who revealed himself to Abraham in a covenantal relationship. The scripture calls our covenantal relationship as Christians. It calls it the new covenant. We have a covenantal relationship with God. It's called the new covenant, spoken of in the New Testament. Mind you, another word for testament could possibly be covenant. That's interesting, isn't it? I will do it. I will bring from you kings and kingdoms. I will have a saving relationship with your offspring. Scripture makes a distinction, by the way. Those who don't share in the faith of Abraham, though they may indeed be able to trace their bloodline back to Abraham, they're not counted as the children of Abraham. We should have a look at that. Turn to Romans chapter 9. We'll start our reading in Romans chapter 9 at verse 6. Paul, speaking of the fact that almost none of the nation of Israel had believed in the Lord Jesus. Verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. We'll stop that reading there and I'll just um, flick back and just remind you of what it said. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are counted as children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So here in Genesis chapter 17, as God is making his promise to Abram or Abraham, there are two kinds of children already in mind, the children of the flesh and the children of the promise. Remember that. And we are being counted as children of the promise. And so if you want to know one of the ways that Abraham becomes the father of a multitude of nations, well, there's a multitude of nations represented here amongst us. We might call ourselves Australians, but um, there's a multitude of us here. There are people who weren't born in this country here this morning. We're counted. We're counted as the offspring of Abraham through faith. Let's read on a little more. Or actually, we've actually read the whole passage, so perhaps we don't need to read on a little more. The third thing that I want us to get from here, and we've looked at the fact that Abraham as a justified believer is a worshipping believer. We've looked at the fact that God's providence 
controls all things, that all things come from and by the hand of God. Well, I want us to look at the um, similar condition that Abraham has in his relationship with God. It's the now, it's the not yet, and it's the eternal. Now, not yet, and everlasting. Notice that God says of Abraham, I have made you, this is Genesis chapter 17, verse 5, I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, what's that saying? It's saying something has happened now. I have made you. If I say to you, I have made a model aircraft, what does that mean? Sometime in the past, I bought a kit, I glued it together, I painted it up, and it's done. It's a done deed. It's there. I have made you. God says to Abraham, I have made you. Now. That's a now thing. I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. God is saying, consider it a done deed. It's done. You have a status. In my sight, you are the father of a multitude of nations. You're my main and my chosen man. You are blessed. Abraham has something now, something he can hold on to, something that he can cling to. He is now God's man upon the earth. I have made you. But there's a not yet. God had promised to Abram, or now Abraham, that he would inherit the land of Canaan. Walk all over this land, everywhere you go. I will give it to you. That was the promise of God concerning the promised land. But now it turns out that Abraham himself, personally, he's not going to possess the land of Canaan. But his offspring are. Verse 8, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Looking back at Genesis chapter 15 and just reading from verse 12 down to verse 16. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. A not yet. Abraham has a now. I have made you. I have placed you in the royal court. I have made you blameless in my sight. Now you have my promises and you can cling to them. You can believe my words, but there's a not yet. More to come. But wait, there's more. This land of inheritance, it's actually going to be the generations that come after you that take up this land of inheritance. But then there's an eternal. An eternal. Notice that it's called an everlasting covenant with an everlasting possession. 
Genesis 17, verse 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout the generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Verse 8, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And now, and then there's a not yet, and then there's an eternal, a promise of eternity. Scripture actually tells us that Abram interpreted that eternal promise in a certain way. We should actually look there. Turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews 11, starting at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward, looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was looking forward. He was looking for more than the land of Canaan. Drop down to Hebrews 11, verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed that his offspring would inherit the land of Canaan. Abraham believed that there was an eternal inheritance, a city made by God, that even this land of Canaan promised to him in an everlasting possession was actually a type for something else, a symbol for something else. It was pointing forward to something else. Remember, Abraham believed God. Abraham saw the day of the Lord Jesus. He saw it and he rejoiced. Abraham understood that his life was more than just walking upon the earth and being buried in the dirt. He understood that his life was more than that. He understood that eternity in the presence of God was before him. He understood that in his faithful obedience now in the present day, he was reaching for eternity, eternal life in the presence of God. Eternity in a city not made with human hands, a city that had been prepared by God, for God's people. You see, we're reaching into the book of Revelation. If you're not aware of it, turn turn to the book of Revelation. Chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Abraham was looking forward to a city 
where the people of God dwelled, a city not made with human hands. It was a city constructed, as it were, by God. These promises that we're reading back here in Genesis chapter 17, where do they find their termination? Where do they find their fulfilment? Where do they find their completion? The people of God living in the presence of God, gazing upon the face of the eternally begotten Son of God, and he will be our God and we will be his people. And the scripture tells us that somehow or other, and I'm not claiming that I know how many details Abraham actually knew, but he knew. He knew that he was covenanting with God and he was covenanting concerning an eternal, blessed future. An everlasting covenant, an everlasting possession. Now, not yet. Everlasting. Think of the promises that you've received as Christians, my friends. Think of the promises that we have in Christ. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. We'll start reading at verse 27 of John, chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. We who are his sheep, I give them eternal life. Your eternal life has begun. Your resurrected life has begun. The indwelling of God's Holy Spirit is the beginning of your eternal life. Ephesians, in the book of Ephesians, we're told that the Holy Spirit can be considered to be a vouchsafe a promise, an indicator of that which is to come in the future. Having received God's Holy Spirit, we know that we have received eternal life. There's more to come. I give them eternal life, says Jesus. Are you of his sheep? Have you heard his voice? He has given you eternal life. But turn over to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, we read at verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? We have eternal life, yet we will face death. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at verses 49 and 50 that flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God. My friends, we have eternal life. If we are in Christ, eternity is ours. It cannot be taken from us. We can't be snatched from the shepherd's hands. Even so, we will die. This life is this life we are living right here, right now, this, uh, this struggle between the spirit and the flesh that Paul speaks of in the book of Galatians, it does not go on forever. Flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God. The day will come. We will die. We will go through human death. It will not be a punishment for sin. It will simply be the fact that uh, the way that we live at this moment Spirit and flesh at war with one another. That's not the way that we're to live in eternity. And the flesh must be left behind. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 
Ultimately, as Christians, what are we awaiting for? What are we waiting for? Well, my friends, when you think of eternal life, I don't want you to be think of being an angel clothed in white and floating on a cloud. I want you to think of the promise of Scripture, which is the new heavens and the new earth and dwelling in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and being resurrected, being a perfected human being. One who no longer struggles spirit against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit so that you cannot do the things that you will. That will no longer be our lot. We will be perfectly, totally and utterly obedient, happy and contented in the presence of God. Forever growing in our knowledge of God and forever growing in our Christ-likeness, yet never getting there. And that will be our joy. Every day, more to learn. Every day, growing in love. Every day, growing in grace. Every day, God revealing more of himself in us, to us and through us. An everlasting covenant. I will be their God. They will be my people. These are the promises of God. My friends, when you think of the future, think of the new heavens and the new earth and think of yourself as a perfected human being dwelling in the presence of the Son of God, rejoicing in his goodness and mercy. And then you can start to ask yourself, how good could that be? How good could that be? I like being a person. I don't mind being a person. There'll be things to enjoy. There'll be things to do. There'll be food. There'll be fellowship. There'll be friendship. In the presence of the Son of God. And so, my friends, like Abraham, we have a now, we have a not yet, and we have an everlasting or eternal future in the presence of God. A covenant that cannot be broken, a life that cannot be stolen. God is our God forever and ever, full stop. There's nothing more to be said. And if God is our God, We live before and in the presence of our God forever and ever. Full stop. Full stop. God is gracious. God is good. And we are his servants. And his promises are firm and can be trusted. And they change our lives. They change our attitude. They change our way of thinking. They change our priorities. And if they're not making those changes, well, then we've got to ask about the fact whether or not you have what the scripture would call the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. You must practice as Christians what is called the obedience of faith. Faith that comes from the heart, a heart transformed, a heart made living in the sight of God. My friends, anyone can say they believe in Jesus. It's so easy nowadays I don't even ask people. I honestly don't. So many people, you know, if, if, if all the people who had answered some kind of evangelistic call had raised their hand, repeated after the minister, walked to the front of the church, all of those things, they've done all of those things. You know, if they were all faithful and obedient Christians, the church in Australia would probably be about 40% of the population growing and radically powerful in our nation. That's the truth. They're not in churches. They have not been transformed. They have not had the way that they live changed by the power of God. And though they may have indeed thought, well, wouldn't it be a good idea to live forever? And I'll say I believe in Jesus to see what comes of it. Just saying that you believe in Jesus makes no difference whatsoever. It must 
come from a heart transformed by the power of God, awakened to faithfulness and obedience. And there, my friends, we would find Abraham, father of the faithful. Abraham, the recipient of the promises of God. Abraham, a man through whom God revealed himself covenantally. My friends, just always remember, we're having a communion meal this morning, and that is the meal of the new covenant. The meal of the new covenant. I've said much about Abraham. I've said much about the promises that he received from God, and they were great and powerful, mighty. We've got more. We've got more and we've got better. Why do I say that? Abraham saw Jesus from far off. He saw him from far away. My friends, we get Jesus up close and personal. We've got the Gospels. We've got the communion meal. Everywhere we look, God brings us the Gospel. My friends, here in the communion meal, you're getting the Gospel. It's the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ broken and shed for us. We have more clarity than Abraham had. We have more powerful promises than Abraham had. The shepherd himself has said that you will not be snatched from my hand. The shepherd himself, the king of heaven, through whom and by whom all things were created, the great high priest who shed his blood, whose righteousness has been conferred upon us, He said, I've given you eternal life. You're living in the hope of the future. My friends, rejoice in God's goodness and his mercy toward us. This is our new covenant feast that we'll be having after we sing one more time. Praise God. Praise God. To you as a Christian, it should be confirmed to you that I have eternal life that though I die, yet shall I live, and that my eternity is to be spent in the presence of my Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we do indeed thank you for the grace and the mercy that we have found in and through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we thank you that you have blessed us, that we may live in your sight, clothed in his righteousness. Such grace such mercy, such love. Our Father, we know that we are unworthy, yet you have given, for you are a gracious and a merciful God, and you have given these things to us freely through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, may we ever rejoice in your goodness and your grace toward us. Help us to grow in our faith. Help us to grow in our sanctification. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.